Hello and welcome to this Sound on Sound podcast, which runs alongside the April issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me as usual is Hugh Robjohns, Technical Editor. Hello there. Before getting on to the current issue, however, we're pleased to announce that the iPad app version of Sound on Sound is now finally available for subscription via the iTunes website. Both the UK and the US versions are out there, and there's a free download issue, so you can try it out. Isn't that right, Hugh? It is, yes. The January issue, I think, is the free one. And then February and March, and very soon April, are all available to purchase. Or you can buy a 12-month subscription, which costs the price of 10 issues. Bargain. Yeah, we have to point out that it is a different product to the paper magazine and to the uh, e-sub. Yeah, that's right. The subscription is handled entirely through Apple. So, unfortunately, and it is frustrating, we can't actually tie the iPad app subscription to our paper edition or the digital edition or the e-sub. So they are separate things, I'm afraid, which is it's frustrated a few of our customers, I know. But it's just the way it is at the moment. There's nothing much we can do about that. But it's a fantastic product. Everybody I've shown it to has been really enthused about it. I think it's a very effective way of looking at the Mac. I actually prefer using the iPad now rather than the paper edition. Well, it's certainly given me an excuse to think about buying an iPad because the one we already have is welded to my wife and I can't get hold of it. <laughs> Anyway, Hugh, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks, so what have you been working on? Uh, I've been doing the uh, the CLASP system, which is a means of integrating an analogue tape machine with a door of some kind, Pro Tools or Logic or whatever. And basically the way it works is you connect this thing up so that your signals coming into the door actually go via the tape machine. And the way the CLASP works, the clever part about CLASP really, is the fact that it takes care of all that off-tape delay business so that when you've recorded it into the door and then play it back, everything's lined up absolutely in sync. So you get the analog tape quality of recording with complete door integration and the ease of working with the door. It's a very clever system, frightfully expensive, but very, very clever. And there's a you know a distinct market that will actually find that really useful thing to have. Hmm. So if the plug-in analog tape emulations don't quite do it for you, maybe that's the road to go. Well, that's right. Or if you're in a pro studio and you've got an analog tape machine kicking around in the back room and somebody says, let's try that. It's a very fast and easy way of working. You don't have to record things onto tape and then transfer it after Afterwards. It all happens in, in the normal workflow, which is, is a nice way of working. Yeah. And from what I've seen of it, the tape only rolls when you're recording. Yeah, that's right. The other thing I've been doing is Yamaha have updated the 01 V96, and it's now the 01 V96i. And basically what they've done is they've included USB connectivity to a door, and it integrates into the console in the same way that one of their um, interface cards would interface. So you can access all of the channel direct outs, you can pick up 16 returns and, and route them through the mixer in the usual way. Fantastic for recording a live show. I've also done some microphones. I've done the Erland EHRM, which is a really strange microphone. Every microphone manufacturer in Sweden likes to make microphones with weird shaped diaphragms. Pearl and MyLab, for instance, like to do microphones with rectangular diaphragms. There's a new company called Erland. Well, they're not that new. They've been around for a while, but new to me. And they use a triangular diaphragm. And it's a really fascinating device. It sounds really good, actually. I was very impressed with it. It's a large diaphragm microphone, and it has a lot of the qualities of a large diaphragm mic, but it also has the kind of smoothness that you associate more with a small diaphragm mic. So it's a really interesting concept. So what's the idea of the different shape here? Is that just to spread out the resonances of the diaphragm? Yes, basically to do with controlling the resonances. And because with a triangle, there are no parallel boundaries, you don't get reflections across the diaphragm in the same way that you would with either a round one or a rectangular one. So it's all about smoothing out those resonances. And high-frequency resonances are a big problem with large diaphragm mics. And this is just a very neat solution to get around that. And it actually does work surprisingly well. But enough about me. What have you been up to, Paul? Well, I've been beavering away on a couple of technique features, but I'll tell you more about those when I finish them. 
I've got a big HHPA system which is taking up half my office so I've got to test that soon and I've been going through a few microphones including a Sontronics mic which is designed specifically for guitar cabinet miking. It's a dynamic mic but it's a small barrel shaped thing in a circular shot mount. It's called the Halo because the shot mount looks like a halo except it's black so maybe it doesn't but uh, you'll be hearing sound files on the website at some time in the near future. Features. And of course we have a feature-packed issue for you this month with classic tracks looking at the making of Tainted Love by Soft Cell. Meanwhile, Inside Track looks at how the demo by Lana Del Rey became a viral hit. There's also a look behind the scenes with Charlie Peacock and Richie Biggs who talk about producing the Civil Wars. That is, producing them, not fighting them, apparently. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. On a more technical level, we delve into the murky world of audio data compression to see what the compromises really are. I think you've been involved in this, haven't you, Hugh? I had a good look at the article. It's a long article, actually, and it goes into it in some serious depth. Uh, and some of the examples are really quite revealing. The thing with audio compression is that it takes a while for you to get your ear tuned to it, but once you've learned to hear the artefacts, you then hear them forever more, and of course it becomes quite annoying. But it's a very good article, and it does explain the concepts, the technologies, and the practical outcomes in a very usable way, I think. There's also an interview with Line 6 founder Marcus Ryle, and he's explaining how they're taking the PA system concept forwards. And of course, we have the usual massive list of reviews. Paul, I think you've been trying the Kemper profiling amplifier, haven't you? So what did you make of that? Well, initially, I wasn't overwhelmed by the presets. I thought they sounded much like a, a typical modelling preamplifier. But then when I got down to creating profiles from my own amplifiers, I realised that the sound and the playing field actually gets very close to the amplifiers that you're trying to clone. The system is that you fire a series of test signals through your amplifier, you pick them up through the microphone that you would normally use to record your amplifier, and that's then captured as a kind of digital snapshot within this Kemper device. You can then use their EQ to fine-tune it, you can swap the cabinets between different amplifiers that you've cloned because it magically separates the amp and the cabinet characteristics and you can change the cabinet size, so it's really quite flexible. And in the end, I got to rather like it, you know. So is this done with convolution processing? They don't say. Uh-huh. I think they suggest that it may be magic. It, it feels kind of convolutiony in some ways, but, uh, but who knows what goes on inside these mystic boxes these days. I mean, ultimately, it's not like modelling where you have maybe an EQ which is also modelled to sound the way that the amplifier in question would, would behave. For example, a Vox amplifier has only got a single knob labelled tone, Marshall amplifier, treble, middle bass and presence. This doesn't do that. It captures your amplifier with its current tone settings and then gives you a generic set of EQ to further modify those settings. So in that respect, it is a bit like uh, convolution reverb where it's more realistic, but there are fewer things you can do to adjust it. But nevertheless, I found it very flexible and I think it's going to find a home in a lot of studios in the near future. Mm, Interesting. We also look at the Line 6 DT25 amplifier, which is a mixture of valve technology and uh, modelling. And it has a low power mode, which makes it really well suited to studio recording. On the PA front, we've got equipment from QSC and Wharfdale. We've got the Avid HDX cards for Pro Tools. And for microphones, we've got some from Audio-Technica and from Audix. If hardware is your thing, we also cover the Zoom R8 multitrack recorder, which also functions as a sampler and an audio interface. We've got monitors from Neumann and Sound Sculptor's MP573 mic preamp. Things are busy in the software world too with BFD Eco from F Expansion, Imposca 2 from GeForce, and another packed sample library section. We also ran Eventide's Omnipressor and 2016SR reverb plugins through their paces. I uh, was particularly impressed with the Omnipressor, which can really hammer things. 
On the iOS platform, we checked out Notion's Guitar Tab Editor and Camel Audio Synth Mobile for the iPad. And of course, there's loads more that we just don't have room to mention, so uh, go online and check us out and see what's in there. Sound advice. The other thing I've been doing is helping out uh, previous Mix Rescue candidate Kate Ockenden to find the perfect mic for her voice. She's been through 14 or 15 of my mics, and Hugh also brought a box full round today, and she's had a go at those. Mm. Yeah, we went through another eight or so mics today. It's very interesting because it really does highlight the fact that it's not the cost of the microphone that makes the difference. It's the way that the microphone matches the voice that's really the important thing. And we've, we've come across that before, of course, but it was revealed quite well again today, I think. At the moment, I use a Rode NT2000 to record my vocals in my home studio. My friend recommended this microphone a while back and it served me well for a number of years. Its main use has been for vocal sessions on TV stuff, where the focus isn't so much on my voice character, rather on the lyrics and how they relate to the action on screen. And as long as the mic picks up everything clearly and the resulting file is of a high quality, that's brilliant. But the other use for my Rode mic has been for recording vocals on album tracks and for this purpose again it's fine but it's not a case of just plug it in and record it then add a bit of reverb or delay etc. I've had to actually EQ it or otherwise tweak it quite heavily owing to the presence peak in the Rode mic corresponding to what I can only describe as the zinginess in my voice particularly when I'm pushing it dynamically. So I thought wouldn't it be nice not to have to EQ it quite so much There must be a microphone out there that flatters my voice and smooths out the edginess, but how on earth am I going to find it? So I dropped Paul White a line to see if he had any recommendations, and the first thing he said was that you can't really know which mic is right for you unless you try it. There's no way around that. And he said he had lots of microphones tucked away in his place and that I would be very welcome to come and try them. He also suggested that Hugh could bring a few over too and we could see which one did the best job. I was very grateful of that opportunity and so far we've tried 24 microphones by various manufacturers and of various types, um, i.e. not all condenser microphones, singing the same passage from an original song and we've been quite surprised by some microphones in terms of their suitability and it hasn't always been the more expensive ones that have sounded good. I'm still in the process of listening through the files to find my ultimate personal preference. Well, our post bags, both real and virtual, continue to fill with questions, so here's a small selection. Okay, well here's our first question. Do I need a big guitar amp to create a big impressive sound in the studio? Well, you're a guitarist, Paul, and you like big impressive sounds, so what's your answer? Well, assuming that you want to mic an amp rather than go the modelling route, then uh, yes, you certainly can. But the thing to avoid is uh, a very small combo with a small diameter speaker because the impression of largeness really comes from the speaker cabinet and, and its own resonances. A small amplifier in terms of power can actually sound bigger because you can push it quite hard in the studio and get that power amp distortion. Whereas if you've got a 100 watt stack, you have to get that very, very loud indeed to get any proper power amp overdrive out of the thing. With the master volume amplifier, you can overdrive the preamplifier and create distortion, but that's not the same effect that you get when you're overdriving the power stage, which is where the power tubes start to clip and also you get saturation effects in the output transformer. So, a low-powered valve amplifier driving a reasonably large speaker cabinet, you know, a 12-inch speaker in a box rather than a 10 or a 6, will usually give you quite a big sound. Okay, that's good. 
next question is, what's the difference between algorithmic and convolution reverb? And how do I know which type to use? I mean, algorithmic, that's the type that's sometimes known as synthetic, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, or, or modelled. And that basically is the answer. An algorithmic reverb is one which is modelled mathematically. Somebody has worked out where the reflections would come from, what kind of time delays there'll be for the initial reflections. And then you have some kind of modelling process that basically takes the same sound and rattles it round and round with a bit of EQ to generate that decaying tail. They can sound fantastically good, but it is entirely artificial. The other one is the convolution type, and a convolution reverb is where you actually do a physical measurement in a real space, and then you apply it to the signal to generate what are, in effect, genuine reverberation characteristics that you've taken from a real room. So it's a difference between as close as you can get to a real acoustic reverberation and an artificial reverberation which is designed to sound nice. You can do slightly different things with the two types. The classic lexicon sound, for instance, involves a certain kind of modulation, which you can't do with a convolution reverb. On the other hand, convolution reverb can often do a lot more subtle things that are a bit harder to do artificially. Yes, and the, the other thing, of course, is that uh, a convolution reverb is, is a snapshot of reality, and so there's only a certain amount that you can do to change it afterwards before it becomes unnatural sounding. That's right, there are fewer tools to modify it, so you basically you, you pick a sound that you like and you work with it, whereas with an algorithmic reverb you can change all sorts of things, pre-delays, decay times, uh, high and low pass filters on, on the decay tails and all the rest of it, much more flexible, but much more time-consuming to set up, of course. Mm. I think it's probably true to say that some of the better algorithmic reverbs now, like the Bricasti, actually get very close to the sound of real spaces too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, there are a lot of very, very good reverbs. I mean, the Quantec Room Simulator was always you know, renowned for its quite realistic room recreations, and that's entirely algorithmic. TC electronic reverbs have always been built on the idea of ray tracing, where they model very accurately the way sound moves from a source into a room and then bounces back in particular directions. And they can be you know, remarkably realistic. So I wouldn't say one is better than the other. They're just different ways of approaching it, and they give you slightly different sound characters. And of course, with many convolution reverbs, you can get um, what they call impulse responses, which are these things you load into them to produce the end result. And if the impulse response is taken from uh, a good artificial reverb unit, providing it doesn't rely on modulation for the sound, it can clone that setting pretty well too. Yeah, it can, absolutely. And, and a lot of people do do that, of course. I think if I was to generalise, I'd say that for pop music, the artificial reverb still gives you that expensive larger-than-life sound. Whereas if you want something that really emulates a natural environment, whether it's a concert hall or a car park, then convolution is probably the way to go. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing, of course, is that convolution tends to be pretty processor-intensive because it's a lot of calculations that you have to do in real time, whereas algorithmic reverbs tend to be much less heavy on the processor. So if you've got to worry about how much capacity your processor has, then maybe going for artificial reverb is giving you, you know, more capacity for other things, whereas a couple of convolution reverb processes might well, you know, take you over the top, as it were. That's certainly true on older computers. The more modern ones will run several, but if you're sensible and put your reverbs on sends rather than inserting them into every channel, you shouldn't have any difficulty. True. Yeah. Here's another one for you, Hugh. Someone says, what's the difference between a condenser mic and a capacitor mic? And what does the term back electric mean in that context? Well, condenser and capacitor is no different. It's just that condenser is a term that we used to use in the 1950s and capacitor is a term that we use from the 1970s onwards. But it's the same thing. I prefer to use the term capacitor because I'm not that old. I suspect you like to use the term condenser, don't you, Paul? Because you're much older than me. Ooh. No, I call them capacitor microphones <laughs> because that's what we used to call capacitors back when Absolutely. I was learning electronics with Absolutely. the MOD. Condensers are something you find in a 19. 
1930s card distributor, I think. No. Um, back Electret is a different way of making a microphone. It's the same electrostatic principle, but with a normal capacitor microphone, the charge is put into the microphone by a DC bias voltage, an external DC biasing voltage. With an electret microphone, the charge is put in there by installing a pre-charged dielectric material that sits between the diaphragm and the backplate, and that holds the charge in the microphone. Yeah. But other than that, it works in exactly the same way. In fact, on the better back electret mics, the term back electret means that the uh, charge material is actually physically fixed onto the backplate, and that yeah. means it's better than the cheaper type where it's fixed onto the moving diaphragm because it's not adding mass to the diaphragm. That's right. Some of the early ones and some of the cheaper ones, pretty rare to find those these days. But actually, a lot of companies have really taken the electric concept and have done fantastic things with it. AKG C414 is a back electric microphone and it performs absolutely as well as the old traditional DC bias versions. Most of DPA's microphones are back electrets and they're stunningly good quality. Yeah, and of course, loads of audio technical models. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, you know, back electret's not a bad thing at all. And it is, in all real respects, as good as a normal capacitor mic. And we don't mention condensers because that's a very old-fashioned term. Indeed it is. Sound on sound. Tech talk. And now it's time for Tech Talk. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this microphone evaluation thing that we've been working on with Kate. I've always found that with male vocals, you can get a workable sound out of just about any good microphone. But as soon as you put a good female vocalist in front of a mic various artefacts start to spring out, especially when they're pushing their voice hard or singing in the higher registers. Do you find this here? Yeah, very much so. It's a particular thing with capacitor mics. I don't think you notice it so much with good quality dynamic microphones, moving coils and ribbons. I've never noticed it be quite such a problem with those. Maybe it's because the top end response is a little bit more curtailed. With large diaphragm capacitor mics, I think possibly because of the resonances you have, I think that tends to react in a harsh way with the harmonics of a lady's voice. So you think it is just a resonance thing? It's not a distortion characteristic that we're listening to? No, I don't think it's distortion. I, I think it is more this sort of resonant character. I mean, most microphones have a presence peak at the high end. Some of them are quite severe presence peaks. And I think the tuning of those presence peaks and the way that interacts with the harmonics and the voice brings out sometimes good things but very often it brings out bad things that just sound a little bit unnatural a little bit harsh a little bit nasal actually we found with quite a lot of those mics and it's, it just tends to be more of an issue with ladies voices than with men's voices yes in fact kate said that when she's singing um in a higher register and really pushing her voice hard she gets what she she describes as a nagging quality i don't know if her husband would agree on that and there is a sort of throaty rattle as well that sometimes comes through or even a, a little bit of readiness yeah and readiness i think is a good a good description actually so um how would you go about choosing a mic that's going to hide that assuming we're going for a capacitor model well it's basically what we've done it's a case of, of putting up a number of contenders that you think might be up to the job, recording short sections, and then just play it back and listen to it and, and see what qualities it's emphasizing in a nice way, what qualities each mic's emphasizing in a bad way, and then rule out the microphones that aren't working for you and keep going until you find one that does. Yeah, but you do have to focus your listening skills on various aspects of the sound, don't you? Because otherwise you can easily overlook something. For example, if you want to get rid of the readiness in a voice, you can pick a, a less bright sounding microphone, but then in, in the context of a mix, that might actually sound too dull. If you have to EQ the brightness back in, then the problem may be coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can, you can put some air back into it and then, of course, you, you bring in that readiness back again. So you're right, you have to listen very very critically, very carefully. And you've got to be very careful about how you match levels as well. You know, be aware of the fact that some microphones will sound brighter than others and the way our hearing tends to work, we favour things that are louder and brighter. So you've got to be careful not to fall into those kind of traps. Well, we've talked about the damaging quality, which is usually at the high end, but there's also some kind of supportive role. Uh, with some voices, you find that they just lack a little bit of weight. 
And with some of the microphones we've tried, the, the lower mid seems to be just that little bit more supportive than with others. Yeah, that's very true. Part of this is proximity effect, because we're generally talking about using microphones in a cardioid pattern and there will be a certain proximity effect. So you need to be a little bit careful about distances and different microphones have different amounts of proximity effect. But there's also this kind of upper mid fullness that some microphones have and others tend not to. Yeah, it's quite a fine balance, isn't it? Because you, you can try some EQ at around 150 or 200 hertz. You might put some body back in the voice, but it can also make it sound quite blurry down there. The trick is, is getting the right tonal balance and still retaining the sense of focus. Yeah, focus is, I think, is another good term. Better microphones, I think, give you this sense of focus and a 3D sound character and the, the less good microphones tend to give you a very flat sound. Yes, I've, I've certainly found that. Some sound much more involving. You, you can actually hear the person rather than just the voice almost. Yeah. It's all getting a bit metaphysical at this point. But uh, if, if you do try this out for yourself, record loads of different mics, make sure you play them back at the same level and really listen carefully to dis different aspects of the voice on, on different playbacks. You know, First time through, maybe listen at the high end, see if, see if there's any harshness problem. Listen through again. What's it doing to the low end? Uh, listen again, is it sounding nasal or is it sounding boxy or, or reedy? And all of these things have to be balanced because what you really want is a mic that um, plays down the bad aspects of your voice and emphasises the good aspects, which is why a technically perfect mic isn't the right choice for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. The other thing you can try is experiment a little bit with some EQ, a bit of a high-end shelf. Just try that and see what it does because sometimes you know you may find you need to add some air when you get into the mix and actually boosting a little bit of the high end suddenly turns the microphone into quite a harsh aggressive kind of sound and i think probably the most important thing is actually to listen to your voice recording in the context of a mix you know have a backing track of some kind and see how the microphone sits in that mix you know does the voice stand out clearly does it need a lot of extra eq and work to make it come through the mix well that sounds pretty comprehensive who thinks Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for this month, so it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. So take care, don't tread on anything expensive, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.